You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Father God, we thank you for your incredible calling, love. We thank you, Lord, that you're calling us each by name. Oh God, we praise you for your incessant calling, for hounding us, for being the hound of heaven, for for pursuing, Lord, for your pursuing love, for your incredible grace, for the mercy that uh, looks past all the things that would keep anyone else from pursuing us and, and keeps on pursuing us. Lord, we thank you for who you are. God, there's so many things that keep us from hearing you. And there's, there's so many things that keep us from even listening. And today, Father, we would be those who want to hear you. We want to hear you calling us to the cross. We want to lay down the things that keep us from going there. We want to unstop the things that cover our ears and our hearts. We want to soften ourselves before you and be people that that could not only receive from you, but be used by you to help others receive. Apart from you, Lord God, we have no good thing. You are our refuge and our deliverer, our God, in whom we trust. Lord, we confess that we have so often run to other places. Or we've put our hands over our ears and and chosen not to listen to you. But today we take them off. We pray that, that our ears would be open, our hearts would be receptive. And that you, Holy Spirit, would come down. And speak your word for the glory of Jesus in us and through us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Just uh, as a side note, I want you to note that if you are studying and following along with us in the notes uh, that are accompanying the sermon series, that today we're actually covering two weeks, this week and next week, because next week we are... We are being visited by uh, Phil Intima, who is going to be sharing the word with us. When we read our Bibles, <clears throat> excuse me, when we read our Bibles, we must remember the main storyline. If we do not remember what the main storyline is, we will misunderstand Scripture, and we will not hear God's main truth. For us and through that word of Scripture. It is like watching a movie, and as you're watching the movie, instead of being focused on the principal plot and characters, you are off looking at the background and looking at the very minor characters, and you're more interested in all that stuff, which is only props to, to really bolster, to tell the main story, which is all about what the movie's about. You would come to the end of the movie and not really understand what the, the author or producer is trying to convey. And so we can look at Scripture as well that way. We can look at Scripture, and if we don't keep in mind the main thought of what God's doing in this person and, and place, then, then we'll miss it. And always, the main 
purpose of God's Word, this Scripture, when the Holy Spirit guided people to write this book, He always followed, His bead was on one thing. And that was, who is it that God is redeeming and who is it that God is sanctifying to make a holy people for His glory? And all the rest is commentary. All the rest is the backdrop. All the rest are props. All the rest are supporting cast. And so if you get focused on that stuff, you're going to miss what God really is trying to say to you through Scripture. Now, what I just said about how to read the Bible and what I just said about how to watch a movie is equally true for how you... diligently care for your own faith journey. How you work out your own spiritual formation. Same thing. You need to know that you are the principal character in the storyline and in the main plot of what God is writing. His Holy Spirit is writing history on your life to be told in the future. He is following one thing and one thing alone. It is God's redemptive story for your life, a sinner, lost, and absolutely hopelessly abandoned if it were not for a Redeemer. And then having captured you and pursued you, now getting you fit for heaven and sanctifying you, making you more and more like Jesus until you go to meet Him one day. That's the main plot. Now, you might have thought, and in the world, we are, we, are, are, we are told to think that the main idea, the main plot, the storyline of your life is where you were born, what family you were born into, what you are going to get educated to do or be, what you become, how much money you make, where you live, and all the rest and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and you know what? God's really not that interested in some of that stuff. Because the Holy Spirit is following your story and writing it out. And it's all about your redemption and your sanctification. And when you look back from heaven one day, you're going to look back from heaven and you're going to look upon your life and what family you were born into and where you were raised and and the money you made and how how you made it through life and your career and all that stuff is going to be the backdrop of the main event which was Christ redeeming a sinner and making him ready, getting him ready for glory. That's what it's about. That's all that's going to matter then. As we look at Scripture in 1 Samuel, the passage that we're studying this spring, that's how we look at David's life as well. The principal character in 1 Samuel is David, the king. And all the other people are supporting cast. And all the other backdrop is is just stuff that's kind of helping tell the main story, which is David's life. And the questions that are arising as we follow his story are, are incredibly important questions. We're asking ourselves as we read this story, and we know the main plot is sanctify this guy. Get him saved, get him sanctified, get him to fulfill the purposes that God had for him as a king to, to lead Israel, and then get him to glory. We know that's the main plot. But what's all this stuff about running away from Saul in the wilderness? What's all this stuff that's going on in his life as he messes up sometimes? 
We're asking the question, how is God going to get him through? How is God going to put him on the throne? How is God going to deal with Saul? And so on and so forth. And there's other characters besides Saul. Saul might be the best supporting actor in this one, but there's Michael, his wife. There's Jonathan, his best friend. There's Samuel, the prophet. There's the priest Ahimelech. There's the Philistine king Achish. There's David's mighty men that are with him. There's strangers like Nabal and Abigail that we studied last week. And they're all just backdrop. The main event is seeing the story of David. And somehow our goal in this series is that we, as we study the main event in David's life, we see reflected something that is going to help us to understand our story of what God's doing in us as well. In chapter 23, verse 14 of 1 Samuel, we read that day after day, Saul searched for David, but God did not give David into Saul's hands. In verse 19 of that passage, it says that David was in the strongholds of Horesh, south of Jeshimon. And Jeshimon is a Hebrew word that means wasteland and wilderness. There is David, like a vagabond fugitive, running in the wilderness for his life, not knowing who he could trust, not knowing where he will be putting his head to sleep the next night, maybe. It's not hard to understand, if you read it, why David had a breaking point. Not hard to understand. But what I do want us to understand is I don't believe, I hope you're with me on this, but I don't believe that David is a rebel. I don't believe that David is a rebel like Saul is a rebel. Because when we read the, the, the Samuel passage, which is the history and the, and the events, we can also parallel it with what we see in, in the Psalms where David was prayer journaling. And I don't read a rebel in that scripture in Psalms where I, we can read. I don't see a rebel. I see someone who is just trying to walk out in obedience and the stress and the strain of life has brought him to a breaking point every so often and he runs. He can't stand the strain. And instead of running to God, he runs to other places. Because the stress fractures are too much. Some of you might relate to that. That you know your heart is soft toward God and yet you know as well that there are times when you just, whatever it is, depression or stress or anxiety or fear just just pushes you to the limit and you, you make a decision to run from God. The Psalms give us this indication in Psalm 10, for example, verse 1, David says, Why, O Lord, why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In Psalm 13, verse 1, he says, How long, O Lord, how long will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow In my heart. This is David writing this when we look at the events of what he's going through in chapters 23 to 29. I don't see a rebel. I see one who is wrestling with obedience and sometimes failing. 
If you have your sermon notes, the green insert in your bulletin, you'll notice I wrote in the, in the introduction, many have tried to diagnose David at this stage of his life. Was he depressed or afraid or anxious or stressed or all of the above? In today's scripture, we see him on the run again. And we ask ourselves if we, like David, are also prone to run. And knowing our Deliverer and being conscious of what drives us and seeing the consequences of a double life can deter us from running. David was a runner. I'm not talking about the athletic kind. I can just imagine the hosts of heaven, the angelic beings, the seraphim, the cherubim, and all of them in the glory of heaven. And they're looking down over the balcony down on earth during David's time at this stage of his life. And he's going out when all other soldiers were abandoning him. He was going out with a slingshot against a nine-foot Philistine. And I can imagine all the seraphim and angels just applauding. And then when he gets out in the wilderness and and God delivers Saul into his hands, whether it's in the cave or somewhere else in the camp, and he he could kill Saul. He He could take vengeance by himself against Saul. And instead he says, no, I will not trust myself. I will leave room for God's wrath. And all the angels are applauding. Way to go, David. And then there's occasions like the one we're going to look at today when David David faces such strain and he's caught up in his own thoughts and he gives in and he bolts and he runs. And I can just imagine that in heaven some angel says, we got a runner! And all of a sudden, God's angels are mobilized. And in an instance, they're on earth. Because what does it say in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14? It says, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? You see, God's writing the storyline. David's messing up on occasion. That's not going to deter God. That's not going to mess up God's purposes. God is going to fulfill His will. Would you turn in your Bibles to chapter 27 of 1 Samuel? Chapter 27 and beginning in verse 1. And if you are able to stand with me, would you stand for the listening of God's Word? First Samuel 27, verse 1, But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and his 600 men with him went and over to Achish, son of, of Makash, king of Gath. And David and his men settled in Gath with Achish, and each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinom of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. And when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. And then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. 
Why should I, your servant, live in the royal city with you? And so on the day Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since, David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. May God bless his word. You may be seated. You'll notice a quote on the sermon notes as well from the secular humanist psychologist uh, Rollo May. says, man is the only animal that runs faster when he has lost his way. <laughs> I did a little reading about him when I saw that quote. And one of the things that I found out about Rollo May was that uh, his first book was written in the... I forget, 1950s or 60s, and it was called The Meaning of Anxiety. And uh, it was his doctoral dissertation that was created into a book form, and he wrote it, he found interest in researching it because of actually time that he spent in a sanatorium when he had contracted tuberculosis. And in his time in that sanatorium, he observed himself and he observed other people around him and what they did In response to life, he concluded that anxiety was essential to a person's growth, that feeling threatened and powerless forced humans to have courage and to act out of, instead of just conformity and giving in, some new path. Now, I think that he had half the truth. I think Rollo May probably had half the truth. The other half he would not have known because he would need faith to have solutions beyond the human equation. And that's all he was working with was observation. But fear, stress, anxiety, and all these things can definitely result in the growth factor that musters the courage to confront the monsters in your life and create solutions. But the problem is that often the solutions that we will create will come to lead us, yes, into courage, I suppose, but sometimes into avenues that will be just as dangerous as whatever we're running from. Because it's all on the horizontal plane instead of the faith and vertical plane. Which says in 1 Samuel 27, 1, David thought to himself, one of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. I'd like to say three things This morning to you. And the first is that David's deliverer was God and only God. It has we have seen it in the last several weeks, many times where David has been delivered by God. And it should have been on David's mind in chapter 27, verse one, to not stay in the poisonous closed system of his own thinking, but to open it up and say, how about I inquire of God like I did in chapter 23? But it says instead that he didn't do that. But we have tons of references in his life from the time that God delivered him from the the bone-crushing giant that could have killed him to the times when the Philistines couldn't attack or kill him, uh, the Amalekites, Saul himself. I mean, God has been David's deliverer all the way through. It says in 1 Samuel 23, 14, day after day, Saul searched for David, but God did not give David into Saul's hands. 3,000 of Saul's best soldiers were out in the wilderness looking for David, along with his 600 kind of half-soldiers, misfits that were disgruntled with Saul as well. 
God watched over him. Can you not look back on your history and see God watching over you? Can you not look back on your faith journey and see that God has been your deliverer on countless occasions? Can you not agree that the best testimony of what will encourage your faith today is if you would just take the time to reflect back on how faithful God has been to you personally to deliver you over and over again? I believe that if we choose to live in the reality of the unseen God and recognize His deliverance upon us in past situations that have been tight, we will have understanding that regardless of what the eyes may see around us, regardless of how hopeless the situation might feel, that that reality of the unseen God with me today as He's been in the past will carry me through even what I'm facing now. David didn't do that in chapter 27. Secondly, I want you to see David's default plan. I want you to notice that he is developing a default plan of escape even as he is walking in obedience to God. Now, I want want you to hear this. David did not wake up one morning and say, I'm getting out of here. This default plan was being simmered on, cooked on, baked up, prepared by David several, perhaps weeks in advance before he did anything about it. A default plan was happening even as he was walking forward in obedience, he was plotting sideways in disobedience. Have you ever been there? Am I the only one? Have you ever been, like James says, the double-minded man, unstable in all he does? Oh, I don't have a rebel heart, but oh, I, just don't, I just can't stand the strain anymore. And he had a default plan. David thought to himself. It was his thinking to himself, and that's all he did that led him to this default plan. You see, we can really seriously engage in stinking thinking, right? We can really get bogged down in a bad place if we're just caught up in our own head. Several times in Scripture it says that David thought to himself. He even talked to himself. Psalm 42, we've quoted that before, where he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him. See, David talked to himself. A lot of that's good stuff, self-talk, self-thinking. In chapter 23, when he faced a tight spot, he did the same thing. He started talking to himself. But in that passage, it says a few times he inquired of the Lord. This time, he didn't inquire of the Lord. In fact, the literal words in Hebrew in chapter 27, verse 1 are where it says he thought to himself. It It literally says he said in his heart. He said in his heart. Isn't that that interesting? David was saying all kinds of other things outwardly with his lips. But he was saying something else in his heart. We could have been guilty of that today already. We just sang some incredible songs with our lips. What were you singing in your heart? Isn't that the theme of David's life? Isn't that the theme of 1 Samuel? What does it say? Man looks at the outward appearance. 
God looks at the heart. God was listening to you sing in your heart. I love the new song that Jenna presented to us this morning, Hillsong. In my heart, in my soul, I give you control. Consume me from the inside out. God knew David's head and heart default plan. He knew what David was saying to himself over and over and over again. He knew that it was leading him to a default plan. And he knows your default plan as well because he knows your heart. And so we see David obsessing in his heart thoughts for a long time. No one makes rash decisions. Our decisions come as a result of a a time and period of thinking. Look at chapter 26 with me and notice in verse 19. Chapter 26, verse 19, David is talking to Saul. After having had the opportunity to kill him, he, he lets him go again. And he says to Saul afterwards, They have now driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said to me, Go, serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. What is David doing? David is now entertaining a new notion. He's entertaining a default plan. He's entertaining the idea that he would be driven from his inheritance as from the tribe of Judah and the promised land, that he'd be driven from the land that he was anointed to be king over, that he'd be driven away to serve in the Philistines other foreign gods and live there. There is a crack in the shield of faith in David's life right now as, we, as he opens the door. And here in chapter 26, 19, starts the plan rolling. A crack in his spiritual armor. He starts believing it. He starts believing there's no real alternative. He says, the best thing I can do. Do you ever do that? Have you ever found yourself so stuck in your own thinking that you've made a decision? You've believed a lie. You've thought that the best you could do is, is X. And God has said, I've called you to Y. Who are you going to believe? And in this moment, he believed Saul and all his threats instead of God. There is a way to relieve the pressure. There is another alternative. We all have our default plans of escape. We have our devised ways of relieving the pressure. I don't know if you're struggling with more with fear or anxiety or stress or temptation or depression We all have our ways of getting out from under those things. We have. We devise them. We plot. We think of our plan of escape. There is a way of getting out from under the pressure of fear or depression or anxiety or stress. The problem is that it comes with a cost. Notice in chapter 27 in verse 4, it says that when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. David's plan was successful. The pressure was relieved. The peace came down. I can put my head down tonight and sleep the peaceful sleep because Saul's not after me. There's another enemy that will stop pursuing you when you run from him. His name is Satan. And there's a way of getting relief from Satan. 
If you want to get relief from Satan, just, just, run, just, just cave into him. Just give in. Just run. Because he'll never stop pursuing you until you give in. Then he'll stop. And God, as we studied two weeks ago, God wants us to find refuge in him. God wants us to run to him. God wants us to find him as the secure place of refuge from sheltering, from from Satan, from enemies, from stress, from pressure, anxiety, depression, whatever. God wants us to run to him. And that leads us to the third point, which is the double life that David David's decision led to. I want to show you from David's life what decisions of duplicity lead to. Not inquiring of the Lord, David runs to the Philistines, the arch enemy of Israel. God had anointed David as king to stamp out the Philistines who were occupying God's promised land. But instead, David goes and lives with them. He'd already had one excursion in, in chapter 21. He goes there and King Achish figures this is a madman. The only way he can escape is by pretending he's insane. And so he gets away. But this time around, he goes as an exile from his homeland. He thinks this is the best he can do. And in verses 6 and 7, it says that King Achish gave him the, the city of Ziklag, which had been given to Joshua uh, many years earlier and had been recaptured by the Philistines. And, and yet, even though they had owned it, they really never repopulated it. And so King Achish is thinking in his mind, how can I trust this, this David? I'm going to give him that place far from me and I'm going to let him do his bidding. And it says for a one year and four months, David would go out on raiding parties with his 600 men. He'd go out and he'd fight mutual enemies of Philistines and Israel. And he would make sure there were no survivors. He would kill everything so that no one could come and squeal on on him. And when he would come back with the booty and the loot, he would just give some to the king and he would show that he's been this loyal subject now for a year and four months. He convinces the king of the Philistines that he is now crossed over. And in the middle of this thing, David loses his identity. David's forgotten that he's been anointed to be king of Israel. David has forgotten that God is upon him. There's promises to fulfill David begins to live by deceit and lies. He has to lie to the king to, to keep himself alive. And he begins to live the double life. I would love to know exactly which psalms he wrote during that year and four months. He lives by deception. I was preaching one time in Thunder Bay and um, I forget what I was preaching on, but after the sermon, I was at the front. I just pronounced the benediction. I was standing there and uh, a university student came right down the aisle, walked right up on stage. And he said to me these words. He said, the double life sucks. I, I knew there was a story behind that one. We talked. So the double life sucks. You see, the most miserable people on this earth will not be the absolutely pagan rebel that never gives a thought to God, nor the one who is seeking to walk in obedience daily with the Lord. 
It will be the person who is duplicit, is trying to live in both worlds, is the double-minded man that's unstable in all he does. And you know, the fact is that if you think about it, every one of us lives there sometimes. The stress, the strain, the whatever of life. It's not like we're trying to rebel against God, but but it just the pressure just is too much, and we we devise the plan and we take an escape route. As the worship team comes to conclude the service, I want to I want you to think about what you would identify as your default plan in whatever pressure you face. What kind of double-mindedness haunts you? What is it that God is trying to say to you through the life of David in this passage? The, scripture, or the song we're about to sing, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. I would ask that you pray that in a fresh way today as we sing this song. And then I'm going to ask Pastor Elf to give us the benediction today. Amen. God bless you. I don't know if you noticed, but in the uh, bulletin, the scripture for the service today is ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. It wasn't quoted, but it's behind a lot of what we did. Some of the singing, some of the work of the ensemble, the king and I. I'll be... uh, led by my, the, the, the master's hand. 
And then I sing the mighty power of God and holy, holy, holy. All those things just build and build and build. I could take the whole thing through. And recently, I've come through a, a, a deep period of, of realizing I, too, live a double life, or I have for the last little while. I've buckled under pressure and been relieved and God's helped. And I'm reading the scripture, and it says, I can ask anything I want from God. And you know, something said to me, be careful. Don't ask too quick. Because I'm thinking, I don't think the way Jesus thinks. I'm more self-centered. And so this last little while I've been reading through Matthew and I'll do Mark and Luke and John and make notes. What would Jesus do in all the circumstances of life so that I can form a prayer of request from God that fits how Jesus thinks? I don't know about you, but I don't always think that way. Oh God, teach us how far we wander away and how much even in the times that we come to worship and sing your praise, our hearts and our minds, the inside part of us, are thinking things that are not exactly against you. It's just not quite right on. Give us the grace to learn how to pray so that God meets my need, even if I'm not sure how to word it. And give me the courage to walk until I know how to pray the prayer I need to pray. Grant us all your guidance, for Jesus' sake. Amen.